back to the AmeriChicks with Kim Munson, where we dissect issues as right versus wrong instead of right versus left. Agree or disagree, let's have a conversation. I'm thrilled to be having a conversation with Randall O'Toole. He is my go-to guy regarding transportation, urban planning. He's with the Cato Institute. Randall O'Toole, welcome to the AmeriChicks. Hey, I'm glad to be here. Well, we were having a conversation. Something had come across the wire Oh, a few weeks ago regarding Blueprint Denver, and it is a plan that was passed by the city council, and there had been uh, an article that basically had said, uh, this was by Vincent Carroll, a former, one of the former editors at the Rocky Mountain News, that it looked like it was going to shut down single-family home development here in Denver. And at that point, I thought I needed to learn a little bit more about it. And so I uh, looked it up online and I printed it off. I thought I'd try to read it before we had a conversation. But you know what? It's about two inches uh, uh, deep to try to read this thing. But you said you were going to take a look at it. So, Randall O'Toole, what are your initial thoughts about the Blueprint Denver? Well, this plan has lots of pretty words. But what it really comes down to is Denver has decided that they want to capture as much tax revenue as they can, so they want to replace single-family home neighborhoods with multifamily neighborhoods. And that doesn't mean they want to tear down every single-family home in the city, but they want to put a lot more multifamily housing in every neighborhood in the city. They call this giving people opportunities for a wide range of housing, but what it really is is they're going to price single-family housing so high that more people are going to be forced to live in multifamily, even though they would choose to prefer single-family homes. And even if you can afford a single-family home, you're probably going to have neighbors in multifamily homes, which means there's going to be a lot more traffic congestion, a lot more noise, and a lot more issues uh, than if you live in a neighborhood of just single-family homes. Well, now you said the word replace. What, what does that mean exactly? Well, that means... Uh, they're probably going to zone some neighborhoods for multifamily, which means uh, with minimum density zoning. Most zoning that most people are familiar with has maximum densities. It says you can have no more than four houses per acre, or no more than eight houses per acre, or something like that. But they're going to use minimum density zoning, which has been done before in Portland and Missoula and other cities, which means they're going to say no less than 10 homes per acre. So if you have a house and you're on a quarter acre lot, uh, you can keep your house, but if it burns down, you might not be allowed to rebuild it. You might be required to put in a duplex or a triplex or a quadruplex, depending on the zoning and depending on the size of the lot. And if your neighbor has a vacant lot, Uh, and they want to build a house on it, they might not be allowed to build a house. They might be required to build a row house or an apartment building or something else. So you see neighborhoods that have been rezoned with minimum density zoning quickly changing their character from calm, quiet neighborhoods of single-family homes to busy, uh, noisy uh, neighborhoods with lots of families, lots of multifamily housing. Now, really, you know, there's no reason why multifamily has to be bad, but uh, in fact, the, one of the differences 
is that 17 out of 20 single-family homes in the United States are owner-occupied, and 17 out of 20 multifamily homes are renter-occupied. So when you have multifamily housing, you have a lot more transients. You have people moving in and out, which means they have less uh, affinity with your community, whereas if you own your home, you're probably there for a lot of years. You build up relationships with your neighbors who are also there for a lot of years. And so you quietly know what's going on in the neighborhood and, and feel comfortable with everybody. Whereas that isn't true when there's a lot of churn, when there's a lot of newcomers all the time. You never know somebody who is there, somebody who just moved into an apartment, or somebody who's thinking of breaking into your house. Well, and a couple of questions on that. In rezoning, it seems to me like that is changing the rules, changing the, the rules of the game in the middle of the game. If people purchased their their home and uh, the zoning was single family throughout that neighborhood, it doesn't seem fair to me that then government is going to come in and do this rezoning. Talk to us, talk to us a little bit about that. Well, the funny thing is zoning was originally sold on the idea that if you had a neighborhood of single-family homes, you could zone it and make sure it wouldn't be intruded by uh, multifamily housing or by industry or, you know, the standard thing is you won't have a gravel pit uh, next to your house if you have zoning. So uh, homeowners and landowners accepted and welcomed zoning because they wanted to, they thought that what happened to their neighbor's property influenced their property values, and they wanted to protect their property values. So they like to have their, be in a zone neighborhood. So then the planners come in and a few years later and turn around and say, okay, now we're going to use the power of zoning to completely transform your neighborhood because we've decided as an ideal that, you, that multifamily housing is better than single-family housing. And there's various reasons why planners have decided this, but most of them are wrong. And so uh, the planners deliberately want to change people's neighborhoods. Now, if you live in an area that doesn't have zoning, and it turns out in Texas, counties aren't allowed to zone. So if you live outside of an incorporated city in Texas, you don't have zoning. So what people do is they uh, form homeowner associations and write deed restrictions in their deeds mutually so that uh, they have effectively local zoning that the homeowner association decides on. And the homeowner association can change the zoning whenever it wants to by changing the deed restrictions with a vote usually of about 75% of the the, uh, homeowners in the association. So zoning is something that homeowners like. If, If we didn't have zoning, we'd have homeowner associations and deed restrictions to doing exactly the same thing. So you're right. It is a betrayal of those single-family neighborhoods when they come in and say, okay, we're going to change your zoning to multifamily housing. Randall O'Toole, you mentioned that you think Denver is doing this for for revenue. Uh, So what? uh, there's higher tax revenue, higher property tax revenue uh, by putting these people in these multifamily homes. Is that what you mean? Yes, uh, uh, you know, if you have 10 homes per acre or 20 homes per acre, you're going to get 10 or roughly 10 or 20 times the property taxes as if you've got one home per acre. But really, the, the choice is between um, 
Dr. Cog, the Denver Regional Council of Governments, has an urban growth boundary around Denver and Boulder and all the other, you know, Broomfield, all the other towns in the area. And the choice is between relaxing that urban growth boundary and allowing more people to build single-family homes out in the suburbs or forcing more development in the city of Denver by keeping that urban growth boundary and, and increasing land prices throughout the area. And if, if land in Golden or land in Lakewood or land in Boulder cost as much or more as land in Denver, then developers are going to say, hey, we might as well just build apartments in Denver as build apartments in Lakewood or Golden because we can't find any land to build more single-family homes on. And so that's the choice. Expand the urban growth boundary or build higher densities within the boundary. And if you're the city of Denver, you want to go for higher densities because that means more tax revenue for you rather than tax revenue for the counties outside the city. Well, Randall O'Toole, the opportunity for Americans to own property, to own their home, has been, I think, a a real bedrock uh, of the American idea. And it's a way to create uh, create wealth. You you own where you live. You, as you mentioned, you have sense of community. You take, you know, typically pride in your property. Whereas, you know, it's more transient when it's in a, a renter type of situation. But we're pricing so many of our young people out of the market that they are being forced into these apartments, paying very high rents, and then uh, many of them still paying off student loan debt. And they're going to have a heck of a time trying to get to a point where they could afford a home. And I, I think that, that the lack of that opportunity changes the fabric of the American idea. Well, to, to some extent, you're right. You know, the interesting thing is that in the 1890s, uh, working class people in, in American cities were more likely to own their own homes than middle class people. Their incomes were lower. But home ownership was cheap, and they viewed a home as a source of wealth and a source of income. They could take in borders. They could have in-home businesses without paying rent. They could grow vegetables or small livestock in their backyard, you know, goats or uh, chickens or whatever. And all of these would be sources of income. Middle-class people didn't need that source of income. And so they didn't really care about home ownership initially. Uh, and then zoning and, and protective covenants were invented so that if you were a middle-class family and you bought a house, you didn't have to worry about things that you didn't want next door. And so that increased middle-class home ownership. So it's, home ownership was really an immigrant's dream. It was Europeans who were denied uh, property ownership because almost all the land in Europe was owned by the aristocracy. So they came to America uh, in the late 19th century wanting to own land. Some became farmers, some moved to cities, bought land, built houses on the land. A house in Chicago in uh, 1880 or 1890 might cost $500, which was a lot of money in those days, but it was not prohibitive for a recent immigrant to be able to buy a house there. So uh, home ownership became important then in, in, the 1900, or in the 1900s, the 20th century, 
we, it became the American dream for everyone, for middle class, for working class, for all classes of people. And home ownership rates shot up. Uh, by 1960, we had the highest home ownership rates in the world. And today, we're in the middle of the pack. Uh, China, Brazil, Mexico all have higher home ownership rates than we do because they haven't put these kinds of uh, barriers to home ownership that uh, American cities have done. And that, that to me, is a tragedy. Well, and Denver, I think, is uh, trying to get this, this blueprint. I think they want it to be a template to go throughout the country. We're going to go to break. Uh, this is Kim Munson with the AmeriChicks. I am talking with Randall O'Toole. He is an expert on transportation and housing and urban planning. Urban planning. And so we'll go to break. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the AmeriChicks with Kim Munson, where we dissect issues as right versus wrong instead of right versus left, agree or disagree. Let's have a conversation. Thrilled to be having this conversation with Randall O'Toole with the Cato Institute. He is an expert on transportation, urban planning, housing, and we're talking about the Denver Blueprint. This was just adopted by the Denver City Council on April 22nd of 2019. It's about two inches. If you print it off, it's about two inches of all kinds of different things that ultimately it's got a lot of nice words in there, Randall, but it looks to me like a lot of power and force and control over people's lives. In the last segment, we talked about housing. Uh, Let's talk a little bit more about transportation. Why do these planners want such uh, such density in our uh, our cities? Well, it's become an article of faith among urban planners that uh, land use influences our transportation choices. And urban planners believe cars are evil, and transit is good, and trains are good. And so, therefore, anything that gets people out of their cars and onto transit or onto trains uh, is a good thing. Now, how they come up with these ideas is difficult to say. Uh, Cars use less energy per passenger mile than transit. They emit fewer greenhouse gases per passenger mile than transit. They are cheaper than transit, and more and more low-income people are buying cars instead of riding transit. More and more transit riders are wealthy people, Uh, the average the median income for transit riders is now greater than the median income for uh, for transit commuters is now greater than the median income for all commuters uh, for the first time in history because uh, transit is used mainly by the wealthy in many cities. I was just going to so say on that note, Randall, saying, well, I was know. just going to say that uh, you are mentioning that there's more and more wealthy people that are riding transit. But quite frankly, everybody else is paying for that uh, that ticket because uh, their fare only covers about 20 percent, 20 to 25 percent of the actual cost of uh, operating costs of these transit systems throughout the country. That's exactly right. And. Uh, you know, the subsidies to transit are just gigantic. We, we spend over $50 billion a year subsidizing transit. Now, we also subsidize roads. I think we should end those subsidies. But the subsidies to roads are about $60 billion a year. It's more than transit. But roads move almost 90% of all of our travel. Airlines move about 10%. Transit moves 1% of passenger travel. Roads also move 
about 30 to 40 percent of all of our freight. So here we have roads that are moving hundreds of billions, really trillions of passenger miles a year, plus uh, billions of ton miles of freight a year. And the subsidies to them are about the same as the subsidies to transit that move uh, a few billion passenger miles and zero ton miles of freight per year. So it's uh, gigantic subsidies to transit. If, if you ride transit, at least three-fourths of, of the cost is subsidized, whereas if you drive on a road, uh, 90, 98 to 99% of the cost, you're paying yourself. And subsidies are only covering about 1% or to 2% of your cost. And just a quick question on that, because, uh, you know, the, the gas tax was put in place to uh, go towards our roads and bridges. And you mentioned that roads and, roads and bridges are being subsidized. However, when I was on city council, I started to realize that uh, tr- um, planners and politicians and bureaucrats were shaving money out of that gas tax money for transit. So if you actually kept that fuel tax whole, would that almost pay for all of our roads and bridges? Unfortunately, no. Uh Basically, the gas taxes are mostly collected by the states, and they pay for state highways and mostly cover the cost of state highways. There are very few subsidies to state highways. But city and county roads don't get their fair share of gas taxes. The states give some to the cities and counties, but not enough to pay for city and county roads. And so city and counties use other taxes, primarily property taxes, to pay for Got it. Uh, okay. local roads and streets. And what you see is in places like Denver, they say, well, we could maintain the streets or we could build another light rail line. So let's build a light rail line and let the streets crumble. Uh, and we, we're seeing that in cities all over the country. The streets are getting in, in terrible shape. You know, we hear about crumbling infrastructure, but it's mainly because we're not paying for that infrastructure out of user fees uh, like we do with the state highways. Okay. Let's, uh, let me get back to this. This is uh, great information, but we were talking about planners uh, wanting to get people out of their cars and put them into transit. Uh, what else do you find in the blueprint, Denver, uh, regarding that? Well, planners think that higher, people living in higher densities are less likely to drive and more likely to ride transit or bicycle or walk. Uh, and, and they base that on a rather mistaken uh, series of studies. If you go interview people who live in high-density housing next to transit lines and say, how do you travel to work, you're going to find a few more of them taking transit to work than people living in single-family homes. But it's not because the fact that they live in high-density housing leads them to take transit. Instead, it's to, because they decided they wanted to take transit, and so they chose to live next to a transit line on, in high-density housing. That's called the self-selection issue. And uh, uh, an economist from the University of California, Irvine, uh, named uh, Brownstone, looked at the issue, and he said, once you take self-selection out of the equation, the effects of density and, and housing on transportation choices is too small to be useful to influence congestion or pollution or greenhouse gases or energy consumption or any of the things that urban planners say they want to do. So urban planners want to have density to get people to ride transit. 
They want to subsidize transit to get people to live in density. Uh, and we end up with subsidies on top of subsidies. The reality is transit uses more energy than driving. And guess what? Multifamily housing uses more energy per square foot than single-family housing. It also costs more per square foot to build, especially if you get into four- and five-story buildings that you're see, seeing spring up all over Denver. They tend to cost three to four times as much per square foot as a single-family home. And, and high-rise buildings can cost up to seven or eight times as much per square foot as a single-family home. So when we say we're going to build multifamily housing, what we're really saying is we're building expensive housing. And if you want to get a home for uh, $300,000, you're going to have to accept a, a 1,000-square-foot apartment rather than a 2,000 or 2,400-square-foot home with a, a light, nice lot around it. Well, and the other thing is many of these uh, planners and bureaucrats and politicians that want to get people into these little boxes and riding around on trains and bikes and buses, they actually, those bureaucrats and planners and politicians live in single-family houses, many of them, and ride around in their cars. So they just want to get everybody else off the road. We only have about three minutes, and something that we just saw in the news headlines out here in Denver is these planners want to want to have a train from Trinidad to Fort Collins right here in Colorado along the Front Range. What do you think about that, Randall? Well, I love passenger trains, uh, and that's why I wrote a book called Romance of the Rails that looked at passenger trains and concluded that they're really neat to look at, but they're way too expensive. They're basically obsolete. Uh, Passenger trains, even in Europe, only carry about 5% of travel uh, in Europe. Most people in Europe don't ride them, uh, and so they really make no sense in modern society. Freight trains are great. Freight trains save a lot of energy. They're cheap and so on. But uh, passenger trains simply are, are no longer a viable form of transportation. So this is all part of the plan. We pack people into dense housing. We put some train stations up. We build a train line. We subsidize the housing. We subsidize the train line. And we end up with subsidies on top of subsidies. And yet the people living in that housing still drive to most of the places they go. It doesn't work. We should stop wasting our time and money on these kinds of plans. So last question, where does this all end, Randall O'Toole? Um, unfortunately, uh, you know, right now the Trump administration is firm holding the line against spending federal tax dollars on these kinds of pu- programs. But eventually we're going to end up uh, either in 2020 or 2024 or 2028. Now, eventually we're going to have a Democrat in the White House again. And Democrats seem to be sold on the idea that collective transportation is better than individual transportation, that multifamily housing is better than single-family housing. And by packing people into multifamily housing, they can enjoy their estates better than uh, if uh, they have a a lot of neighbors crowding them in single-family homes. So um, we need to hold the line until we can somehow finally convince Democrats as well as Republicans that uh, these Uh, archaic notions of packing people into dense housing and onto collective transportation just don't make any sense today. Okay. Randall O'Toole, I tell you, it's always a great conversation to have with you. Where is the best place for people to find all of your your writings and your books and all? Well, I have a website called The Anti-Planner. If you just Google Anti-Planner, I'm the first thing on the list. And I've been posting a weekly series of policy briefs with data 
uh, about transportation issues, and I'll get into housing issues pretty soon. Uh, from the anti-planner, you can click on Cato Institute or other groups and see all the papers I've written for those groups. Uh, I am a Cato employee. You can go to the Cato website and find my papers there as well and books. Okay. Well, Randall O'Toole, thank you so much. And uh, we'll have to continue to talk about this uh, two-inch deep uh, blueprint Denver that is wanting to control people's lives. So, Randall O'Toole, thank you so much. Thank you.